0: Sometimes a recipe is more than just a list of ingredients that, when put together, creates a dish that satisfies the belly. Sometimes the ingredients are reminders of home, of a summer day spent at the fairgrounds, of lifelong friendships, of hometown happenings, and of a parent's dedication to supporting a community. Welcome to As We Eat, where we explore the intersection of food, family, history, and culture. We think there's something magical that
1: happens when people get together and share food. Conversations seem to happen a little more naturally. We talk about our commonalities and our differences. We share stories, memories,
0: and recipes. And we'll use food to take a journey that explores our human experience. Share some fun facts and some that aren't so fun talk about food history, and how food connects and defines us. So if you've ever eaten, prepared, or shared food, then this podcast probably has something for you. Hey Kim! Hi Lay. How are you? (laughs) I'm good, how are you doing?
1: I'm good, we don't often go in that order, so I'm a little caught by surprise, but I love it. I love (laughs) new, weird, different things. Speaking of which, our seasons are starting to change. It's still hella cold outside, but... I'm starting to
0: feel hints of spring in the air. How about you? Yep. Here too. Our snow has been melting, but it's been kind of a weird winter for us. It's melted Mm. and it snows. It's melted and it snows. But the days are getting longer for sure, Mm -hmm. which feels really good. It really does.
1: So spring's coming and I'm starting to, yeah, I'm just starting to feel that spring energy and anticipating all the delicious spring foods that we're going to be able to eat, some fresh greens and things. It's a wonderful time of the year.
0: It is, but we're still kind of in that winter realm where the, mm-hmm. there's still, you know, the meals or the, the stews are great and the uh-huh. lilies and those types of things. Still enjoying those, but looking forward to spring. So I made chicken pot pie the other day and...
1: I had dreams all day of a beef stew in a pie form. Mm. So I'm, I hear you. I'm with you on that good rib and food. But, you know, maybe some fresh snap peas on the side. I love that inter that interstitial time, that interstitial season where you get to have the best of both. That's pretty rad. Yes, for sure.
0: You know, in our last episode, we talked about The Taste of Country Cooking by Chef Edna Lewis. And our conversation revolved around these two concepts, one of seasonal cooking and eating and what it means to be home. What brings us home? And so the recipe that I chose to make out of this cookbook, I really connected with from a sense of what brings us home this recipe comes from a winter dinner section of the cookbook and in it Edna explains that in the early winter they would get a quarter beef still in its hide and they <laughs> would hang it and use the cuts throughout the winter and I'm pretty sure that this concept of having a quarter of a cow hanging around is kind of a hard thing to consider, right? Mm. We have grocery stores that we can run to quickly to pick up whatever we needed. But I think it's really important to remember that the reminiscence of this cookbook itself really took place long before there were grocery stores, Mm -hmm. very accessible grocery stores. And you really had to rely on things that you put up and things that would store through the winter to sustain yourself through that season. But her comment about this quarter beef reminded me of all of the times that my dad would purchase a cow from the 4-H members at our annual county fair. And, you know, we've talked about the fairs before in our episodes, And but this really was one of those highlights of the summer. We would get together and figure out what days we were going to the fair, where we were going to meet at the roundup or at the rodeo or whatever. So it was a really important time of the year for us from a gathering perspective and I remember sitting on the bleachers and as they would bring livestock into the pen and then the bidding would start and it was fun to watch the bidding because it's always a fascinating process to me but I'm always like is he gonna get this one is he gonna get this one and especially <laughs> if it was one of my friends that was in 4-H Yeah, Um, he was really good about making sure that it was one of the community members, one of the local community members. Where I grew up, we have three cities as biggest city as you can have in montana (laughs) so it it was important for him to support those kids from our community especially if anybody isn't aware of what 4-h is it's a youth development organization where kids actually learn doing hands-on projects in areas like science and health and agriculture and in where i grew up it was agriculture was big so you had a lot of of people who would raise pigs and cows and sheep and then they would go to the fair they would sell them at the fair and then that money that they raised would go to either buying a new cow pig sheep for the next season or it would go into a college fund or it would go for travel but the really important part was that it was a really hands-on project and it was their it was the kids responsibility to make sure that this animal was in good condition, that it was fed. And if that meant you had to get up at 5 o'clock in the morning to make sure that your cow had the food that it needed and that it got the meds that it needed and that it was moved from one area to the next area, that's what you had to do, and then you went to school.
1: I actually envied the 4-H kids, so my exposure to 4-H was through county fairs. I loved going to the livestock exhibitions and seeing these beautiful animals. I also sat and watched a couple of auctions just because it's fascinated like you by the procedure. And I remember being... So kind of envious that, you know, the fairs is going to her county fairs. So they brought in kids from more rural areas than where I was living. It would have been impossible for me to have ever raised a cow or goat or sheep or anything. I my, I can imagine our tiny little urban apartment, you know. But I got to <laughs> feed the maybe rabbits, but probably not. Right, probably Anyways. rabbits. But I love the fact that they had this project, that mm. they had these criteria that they were supposed to meet. I guess I'm just a nerd, you know real hardcore nerd for anything. where like, and you have to meet these standards and you have to do this criteria and this checklist. But I remember being amazed by what they were able to accomplish. And those kids learned a lot of skills. And they was, did. It was pretty cool. It's always been cool. Even as an adult, I still think it's cool to see what they can accomplish.
0: Yeah, yeah. The whole responsibility about raising an animal is one thing. But to raise an animal, to know that it's going to... It's going to be slaughtered. That's a hard thing, and yeah. to be able to do that, and I don't. I don't want this to be gruesome or anything, but I no. think that it's an important thing to understand how and where our food comes from. Because absolutely, it, you know, it, this is what happens. I personally, I don't think that I could have done that. Yeah. I do understand where my food comes from. I get that. I know what the process is, but I just don't think that I could ever do something like that. So yeah. I think it takes a pretty special kind of person that can that can work through that and get to that yeah. from A to B in that point.
1: But and you learn in that you learn through that process too about how to put things into perspective. Yes. Because those are skills that how most of us generally speaking are probably not going to become farmers raising our livestock that is intended for at some point to be food. But yeah, and that was kind of the reality of this community as we right. discussed. The Freetown community was about being self-sufficient. It was a point of pride. It was, they also really yes. didn't have a choice. <laughs> like if, <laughs> this was their lives. exactly. And so the reality was that a lot of the animals that they cared for had a, had an intention, had a purpose. Yep. It's, yep. you know, those of us, yes, it's easy to go to the store and buy, you know, a chicken parts or a steak. And you do feel incredibly divorced from yes. where that product is coming from. How it's gotten to you, and so it's easy to kind of just accept it. But you know, when we do talk about understanding and seasonality, because you know we we have these mechanics that make it so that we can have anything year round,
0: right? Yeah. So yeah, it always made me really, I was very proud of my dad for doing that. I was very proud of him Mm. for supporting his community. And for him, if you belonged to a community, you supported that community. And Mm -hmm. I loved that he passed that on to us kids as well. With all that said, the recipe (laughs) that I made is called Beef All-A-Mode. And it is not beef with ice cream on top of it. (laughs) Good. I'm glad. Uh, I'm sure that exists somewhere. It could. It, it could it, it, probably. It could. Does. But so mode has two different definitions in the culinary world. The first one, which is the one that I think most of us think of when we hear mode, is a dessert that's served with ice cream over the top of it. The second one, then, the one that we'll be talking about today, is beef that's larded and stewed with vegetables. The head note of the recipe says, Beef mode is another name that's familiar to our area along with Blanc-Mage, which you mentioned mm. last week, Divinity, which you also mentioned last week, and Lahore. It has no equal when made with a local butchered beef and loads of homegrown onions. A delicious mm. dish served hot on a cold winter day and equally good served cold on a hot summer day. So this recipe in the cookbook serves six to eight. It has four pounds of chuck or bottom round, three tablespoons of butter, larding fat, which we'll talk about in a minute, salt and pepper, four pounds of yellow onions sliced, a Mm. bouquet of parsley, thyme, and bay leaf, a half a calf's foot cut into three or four pieces, two cups of claret, one cup of beef bouillon, one rounded tablespoon of brown sugar, three carrots sliced, two teaspoons of granulated sugar, and one dozen small white onions. Her method goes back to what you were talking about when you felt like she was standing right there Mm -hmm. walking you through this recipe. Prepare the beef by having the butcher lard it or lard it at home yourself. Take the strips of larding fat sprinkled with salt and pepper and put them into a needle, larding the meat throughout. Tie it well and sear on all sides in one tablespoon of foaming butter. There's that. There's that. I'm standing right here. And here's (laughs) what the butter needs to do, right? It needs to foam.
1: Wow. What a specific detail. But I get it. I get it. But yeah, to the point of foaming butter and not browned, you know, okay. Melted butter. Yeah. It's got to
0: be foaming. Foaming. And then she goes on to say that searing will help to seal in the juices during the long cooking time. After removing the meat from the skillet, add the sliced onions and sauté until slightly brown so we have a color that mm-hmm. we're looking for. Put the browned onions in the bottom of a cooking pot. Add the bouquet of spices, the beef and the pieces of calf's foot. Heat the claret when hot but not boiling, <laughs> set a flame. So we oh, get to light it on pyrotechnics. fire. Yay. yeah. And then you hold it above the burner and tilt it back and forth until all the alcohol has burned off. Add the cup um. of beef bouillon to the wine and brown sugar. Stir well and pour over the beef and contents of the pot. The liquid should cover about two-thirds of the meat. Cover with a tight lid and set the pot in the center of a preheated 250-degree oven. Leave to cook for four hours, turning the meat halfway through the cooking. As the meat cooks, the temperature may have to be reduced. The contents in the pot should simmer very slowly. Again, here's this. We don't want this bubbling, boiling yeah. bubble. We want right. it to be just simmering very slowly. An hour before the beef a mode is finished, slice the carrots, saute them in one tablespoon of butter and add them to the beef. Wipe the skillet out and add another tablespoon of butter and two teaspoons of granulated sugar. Heat until foaming. Again, add the white <laughs> onions and shake the pan around until the onions are well coated and nicely browned. Add to the pot. Okay. When the cooking is finished, place the meat on a platter. Set the onions and carrots around it. Remove the pieces of calves' foot, cube them, and add to the meat platter. Press the rest of the sliced onions and sauce into a bowl through a sieve, skimming off all the fat. And heat the sauce until very hot. Pour over the meat platter and serve immediately, piping hot. I'm I'm, I'm salivating so hard <laughs> right now. <laughs> We talked mm-hmm. about this in the last episode. The writing is just really beautiful. You feel yeah. like you have somebody with you right there. You yeah. know what to look for. You know the colors to look for. You know what the butter's supposed to look like when you add the meat to it. You know that it shouldn't be bubbling if it's if it's mm-hmm. bubbling like that. You need to turn the oven down to make sure that you're not breaking all of those protein strands yeah. too quickly. Yeah. Um, and you're not yeah.
1: boiling your beef. And, <laughs> and in, don't and boil mine. Don't boil your beef in wine.
0: Yes, don't. Just don't. (laughs) No, and that's interesting.
1: That's actually the other thing I noticed was the two stages of onions, that you have the onions that are cooked with the beef and effectively discarded, although when you press it, obviously you're going to be pressing their cooked flavors, but that you've got the second set of onions that really are meant to be not a garnish, but a component, but that they're newer, fresher, not as... Not cooked for four hours.
0: Obviously, they'll impart a different texture where the four pounds of onions that you put in there initially were for the flavor that they really kind of gave up yeah. into the sauce. Yeah. Yeah. So, the, I the,
1: she, that. yeah, she knows that they're going to be exhausted at that exactly. point. Exactly. The, the four pounds of yellow right. onions when you're caramelizing them a little bit with the sugar. Right. Too. Exactly. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. So, larding,
1: larding. <laughs> i going need to understand to larding. what larding is.
0: Yes. This is a pretty cool if you don't mind manipulating meat. It's yes. kind of a cool thing to do, I think anyway. So essentially what it is, you are you're adding fat throughout the meat and it helps to add tenderness and flavor and generally it's done with a larding needle and it's kind of a concave huh. shaped needle and you put the lard through it. I used bacon fat. You don't use lard. But you use a fat that's a little bit more uh, strong than just a piece of lard (laughs) because that'll just fall apart. So you put it through the needle and you manipulate it through the meat. And you want to work with the protein strands yeah these days we really don't need to do a lot of larding because the beef is kind of raised it's
1: yeah the beef is well raised marbled. very
0: differently than yeah than it was yeah. so you have a lot more marbling that's going on if you want to do larding and you don't have a needle you can use a sharp knife and poke holes into the meat and then put the fat into that and that's nice to help add flavor to it
1: yeah Especially if yes. you're using a
0: contrasting, like a bacon to a beef. Exactly. Or, yeah.
1: done yeah. that technique, uh, not the larding technique, but the creating, you know, pockets for herbs, garlic, especially. Exactly. You know, yeah. studying something with garlic or a little bit of spices or something. But I've never, I've never heard of larding. I totally am excited to learn something new because that, this sounds
0: fascinating to me. Now, the calf's foot. Yes. <laughs> The calf's foot. The purpose of the calf's foot is to add gelatin to this dish. the This sauce is really important to this dish, so it adds this thickness Mm. to this Mm -hmm. dish. It also adds a lot of flavor. And when I read this, I texted my girlfriend who I grew up with, she's my first best friend's sister, because she (laughs) and her husband have a ranch on the east side of Montana. And I texted her, I said, Hey, do you happen to have a calf's foot just laying around? (laughs) And she's like, Uh, I'm not sure. I'll check. Now, these are probably texts that only happen in Montana. Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. It was, it just happened to be in the middle of their season. So she didn't have one. So I wasn't able to use a calf's foot in this recipe. But I did use a roast that was from the Jensen beef ranch. So I used the meat from our friend's ranch, which made it feel even more connected to me. Yeah, And actually the ranch is over a hundred years old. Over a hundred wow. years in their family. Oh my
1: god, that's incredible!
0: Isn't that amazing? Yeah, yeah. You probably don't have a beef rancher friend that you can get a calf's foot from, but you can use gelatin too. Just
1: yeah, a packet of okay. Gelatin. And so it's it's meant to add that gelatin to get give that sort of unctuous yep. mouth feel.
0: Yep, which matters it matters. It so does. Much. Yeah. It totally matters. Now, you had mentioned this just a little while ago. The One of the things that I thought was really interesting, and Edna made a point that this was a dish that was for a special occasion. And one of the things that struck me was the preparation of the carrots and the white onions, the little white onions being done separately from the roast. Because there are two ways to make a a la mode. There is the a la bourgeois, which means classy mm-hmm. the classy style then the a la menagerie which means housewife style and this is according to la bon cuisine that there are these two different processes French, two different these
1: two French techniques exactly two... yeah yeah and I'm so glad you brought that up because this was something that I read about and I didn't manage to get it in the last time we talked about it So excited to be able to talk about the cooking styles that Edna Lewis, would have learned and did learn in Freetown that her whole family actually knew. Because at one point, William Faulkner, who was a uh, favorite of hers, big customer for her when she had the first restaurant, he once asked her if she had studied cooking in Paris because she was using these French techniques. And the reality was, according to Edna Lewis's younger sister, Ruth Lewis Smith, that they all learned how to make soufflés from their mother in Virginia. A lot of the way that food cuisine and food culture developed in Virginia has this really interesting historical mix between the wealthy, the not-so-wealthy. Remember, was, up until the Civil War, a state where slaves could be owned. And so a lot of households, especially the fancier, maybe more wealthy homes, had servants or slaves. And, and a lot of this goes back to the colonial elite who socialized a great deal with the French politicians during the Revolutionary War. The United States and France were like that for our revolution. The French soldiers fought on our behalf to be uh, liberated from England. To properly entertain your French guests, you did your best to incorporate French techniques and French styles. But this cuisine was built on local ingredients. We weren't importing canards. You cooked with what you had. And so it's really a mashup between French technique, American ingredients, and then if anything that kind of has given us this... Virginia style. But the reality, too, is that all these foods were being prepared and provisioned by people of color, slaves from Africa, Native Americans, slaves even from South America. And those uh, techniques were further than developed by black chefs within states like Monticello. And because this aristocratic strain of Southern cuisine was basically created and perpetuated by these folks, when they were freed, they basically brought that into their own home kitchens, into their communities. So it's just quite this misnomer, I feel, that sometimes we tend to make the mistake that Southern cooking, as a general sense, is somehow very unformed, unrefined, mm. very simple, as if folks didn't have any understanding of how to the technique or style. The reality was, actually, that we're very well-versed in fine cuisine, and that they brought these techniques into their home kitchens and that perpetuated throughout the Southern food culture. Yeah. When we think of pie a la mode, we think of ice cream, of course, but it really means of the style or of the moment. Correct. Because there's fashion a yes. la mode, you know. And so at some point when this dish was kind of became entrenched in Edna Lewis's life, that was the style. This is how you serve and eat beef is a la mode. With carrots and onions. Yeah. And honestly, it stood the test of time because I think that's a pretty, pretty popular flavor palette to this day. Oh,
0: for sure. Oh, for I sure. I know we
1: like, you can add in all manner of root vegetables, but that's the thing, right? This is a winter dish. You're cooking your beef with a good root
0: vegetable. Yeah. And you know, you say that when I pulled the beef all the mode out, the first thing that struck me was the image of Sunday supper because yeah. we had roast beef. And this is very similar to a roast beef. And my mom really, you know, she wasn't, she didn't like to cook. For her, it wasn't a pleasure like it is for me. It was a chore for her, but she made a pretty mean pot roast. (laughs) And this, it just, it brought back all of these memories about sitting around the kitchen table with my family, talking about what had happened during that day. And this was a time when mealtime was really sacred. Yeah. Um, You didn't call your friends at mealtime. You didn't answer the phone at mealtime. You didn't visit people at mealtime. You didn't just drop in. There was a time between this time and this time when you really kind of shut the world out. And this was the time that you focused on family. And that's really, I was really surprised. That's what when i pulled this out of the oven that's what yeah. hit me i mean it would just literally washed over me i'm like oh, this is home
1: yeah i've had those experiences too pulling a roast chick for me wrote a sunday roast dinner was typically roast chicken my mom would onions potatoes carrots and that was something that was her childhood thing that they mm-hmm. would do the sunday roast but To this day. Yeah. When I think about if someone were to pull me, Kim, what is the quintessential meal for you that represents your family, your memories of your family, your time spent with your family is a roast chicken dinner. It's a beautiful thing. And it's a very visceral thing. For sure. The odor and the just the steam coming when you open the lid. Yeah. How did, what did you eat with your beef a la mode, if I may ask?
0: Well, we had crusty bread. Must have. Yeah. And then Edna suggests canned beans because that's what they had. I'm not a fan of canned green beans. So we had some fresh (laughs) green beans that we uh, sauteed up in the pan. That sounds like an amazing meal. Very good.
1: Did you save me any?
0: Yes, there is some in the freezer. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> yes. Yay. Good.
1: Oh, yeah. thank you for exploring and sharing that recipe with me and yeah. our As We Eat family. It must have been so lovely cooking with Edna, it, it, in a manner of speaking.
0: It was. It You know, with Edna and with my mom, you yeah. know?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Oh. No. I'm so happy to hear that.
0: So in our next episode, I'm super excited to talk to you a little bit about what's coming up. We'll be diving into a cookbook collaboration that would help to change the course of women's rights. And this book is a beautiful example of the pride that these women took in homemaking as well as the desire to be recognized as important contributors to their communities and to their country. And I think it's important to understand how important that homemaking was to them, because a lot of people felt that these women were going to destroy the family. Yeah. So this cookbook really is a great example of how these women combined these two really important components of their life.
1: Yeah. I just want to reiterate how important it was to these women. They needed to make a point about how important it was to them to gain the agency, to gain the right mm-hmm. to vote, and they didn't want to give up their home lives. The point to make was you can give us the right to vote and you're still going to have a <laughs> dinner on the table. It's not, we're not about, that came later. That was second wave feminism where women started rethinking what it meant to be. A woman and what jobs and responsibilities were associated with us. But for this monumental movement in mm. history and in time, it was, yeah, we can have agency and still home make.
0: We can bring home the bacon and fry it up, and in, the up in the pan.
1: <laughs> 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 Absolutely. Absolutely. I had a bottle of Charlie perfume for a long time. For more information about today's episode, check out our website at asweeat.com. Follow us on Instagram at Eat, and please join our Family Recipes, Traditions, and Food Lore community on Facebook for some exciting conversations about food, culture, and history.
0: And we know you are not going to want to miss an episode, so make sure that you subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And if you could spare just a couple of minutes and rate and review the podcast either on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser or Spotify we would be so appreciative. Reviews and ratings are really important in the growth of the podcast and of our fabulous community that's built around it.
1: We also publish the As We Eat journal on Substack and we would be so honored if you would support us by becoming a subscriber. We have several subscription tiers that we think are gonna be wonderful for you. We're sure you're gonna find the right one at asweeat.substack.com. Thank you for your support. It helps us keep producing amazing content for you.
0: You've been listening to the As We Eat podcast, part of our curiosity driven project serving up how food connects, defines, and inspires by blending a bit of research, a dash of humor, and a whole lot of passion. <laughs>
1: ba Ba pa ra Ba ra pa pa